Hello and welcome to this final episode of season three of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea, and as always, I'm grateful you're joining me in this storytelling space. If someone would have told me three years ago when I first started this podcast that I'd be interviewing my guest today, I would not have believed them. Sadly, three years ago, I would not have been open to sharing Paula's story, the story of a transgender woman's journey to becoming fully herself. It pains me to admit that, that I was so close-minded with only a desire to share stories that I believed were worthy enough and true enough to tell God's goodness. But like stories often do, when we're brave enough to listen, they change us and they open our hearts and minds in ways selective listening never can. That's what this podcast has done for me. That's what stories have done for me. Expose me to a whole world that maybe doesn't look anything like my own, but has helped me see just how connected our stories actually are. I found this to be so true with the story of my guest today, Paula Stone Williams. Even though I can't relate to Paula's agonizing journey of being a transgender woman, I can relate to her story of becoming the woman God made her to be and fighting the narratives that society often tells us to be true. Paula's story is a hard one, so full of brokenness and beauty. As a child, Paula was assigned male at birth, but since she was four years old, she knew she was, quote, in the wrong body. She was raised in a conservative home with a father who was a fundamentalist preacher. Paula spent nearly 60 years of her life fighting this feeling, going through intense therapy, battling depression, getting married and attending Bible college, and attaining a doctorate in theology, all in hopes something would change her feelings. Paula even spent most of her adult life as a prominent male leader in evangelical ministries that taught that the LGBTQ population would go to hell unless they gave up their sexual identity. But finally, in December of 2013, the married father of three announced her plans to transition to Paula, the woman she'd always known she should be. As Paula transitioned, the life she once knew abruptly came to an end, losing her career, her house, her finances, and nearly her family. And perhaps most sadly, the evangelical community that once embraced her disowned her. In our conversation, Paula shares her story of losing it all to find herself. But in a beautiful story of transformation, Paula's new life is focused on a new mission as a transgender rights activist and equity activist, preaching love, compassion, and acceptance. If Paula's story is uncomfortable for you, I challenge you to keep listening. Lean into that feeling and ask yourself why. I truly believe the most uncomfortable stories are the ones that have the most to teach us, stretching our hearts towards love, acceptance, and inner transformation. So listen in as Paula shares her story. Paula, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm so glad to be with you today. Like we said in our little pre-chat, I mean, I really am thrilled to have you here today. I know it's a busy month for you. It's Pride Month. You also just released your book. So you have a full schedule. And so you just giving me this hour of your time. I'm really just humbled to get to sit down and talk to you more about, about your story. I just think stories are the best way for us to share about our life and the journey that God's put us on and helping open other people's minds through that. So thank you. You know, I'm doing a uh, an interview for a number of, uh, I think it's CBS owned stations around the country and major markets. 
And they asked me to write uh, answers to three questions, which I did early this morning for their online audience. And one of them was, why would you speak with us? And it's exactly what you just said, because we are a narrative-based species. We don't sleep without dreaming, and none of us dream in mathematical equations. We dream in stories. And I'm really very convinced that the only way we close the gap is through story. In fact, thinking about it right now, I think this is the first time I've said this. I'm a pastoral counselor by trade. That's where my doctorate is. And I lost all of my evangelical friends when I transitioned. I did not lose any of my evangelical clients. And that to me was so surprising at the time. In fact, I said to all of them when I came out, you know, that I had another therapist in mind for them that I could send them to. And all of them were like, oh, do do we have to? Mm. And it surprised me so much because it was so different from the other evangelical response where I pretty much lost everyone. And I realized it was because of how intimately I knew their story, that to them, it wasn't nearly as important what gender I was as the fact that I intimately knew their story. And therefore, they knew that I love them because I don't think you really can be a good therapist if you don't actually love your client. But yeah, that that to me was, I think, the, probably the deciding factor for those folks was their own narrative and how well I was acquainted with that narrative, which then caused them to be far more generous in my yeah. transition. You know, I think conservative evangelicals, and we both were, would have classified ourselves as that, but probably no well, longer yeah. do. Um, we fear what we don't know. And the LGBTQ community, transgender, we put that shield up and like, that's just the enemy. That's the sin. That's devil, you know? Right. And it's like, you don't get acquainted intimately with those stories and people. And I know for my own life, that's what changed me in this podcast. When I first had Emmy Kegler, she's a queer pastor and just knowing, getting to know her and her story. And that's when I was like, wait a second, what, what have I been told? Because this isn't quite matching up. And I think that's the power that stories have and your story, which you share in your new book this month called as a woman, what I learned about power, sex, and the patriarchy after I transitioned. And we're going to dive into that today, a little bit of your story, but not all of it because I still want people to get the book. So before we do though, just introduce yourself as far as where you live right now, what your day-to-day life looks like, just some very basics about you. And then we'll start a little bit with your story. Sure. My name is Paula Stone Williams and I live in Boulder County, Colorado. I've lived here for the last 15 years after spending 35 years in New York and growing up in Kentucky, Ohio, and West Virginia. So New York, in a lot of ways, is still home in my brain, I think. After 35 years there, it's it's always going to be home. Mm -hmm. But I love it here. I have a beautiful home that looks out uh, on the Rocky Mountains, and I'm about 17 miles from Rocky Mountain National Park. So it's a wonderful place to live. I'm one of uh, the co-pastors at Left Hand Church, a new church in Longmont, Colorado. And then I also speak all over the world on issues primarily related to gender equity. My TED Talks have had over 6 million views. And one of those talks is on my transition from Paul to Paula, but the other three talks are on the difference between experiencing life as a man and life as a woman. And those have had over 5 million views. And so I speak a lot all over the world on issues of gender equity. So that's the main source of income at this point is that speaking uh, that I do. But I also am a a, a pastoral counselor and keep a small practice, now very small, 
uh, because of how busy I am with my other work. It is a busy month and your book is going to become a, a movie, de- a movie possibly. Is that what I read? Well, it was already set to be a movie. I had um, sold my life rights, which sounds kind of Faustian, to a company in Hollywood. And they contacted me maybe a month and a half ago and said, everybody that's involved in this project has, and they already had a script for a movie. They said, we've read your book and we don't think our script does it justice. Mm -hmm. We actually want to purchase rights to the book and turn it into a limited series television show. So seven to 10 uh, shows that would be a dramatic show, not a, not a documentary uh, that covers all the aspects of the book. So in fact, right before we, we got on today, I was speaking with one of my friends who works in the movie industry, is a camera operator, and has also been involved in writing a number of scripts. And we're going to try to talk later this week about ideas for that, because they're asking me to be one of the producers in it. And that's not not an area of expertise for me. So your life has exploded in ways you never thought possible. You started out before you transitioned, which was less than 10 years ago. For 35 years, you were an evangelical pastor at mega churches. You were the CEO of of huge nonprofits, evangelical church planting. And now you have gone from Paul to Paula. So let's start with your childhood. And in this conversation, we obviously are not going to have time for every little bit of your journey. And that's why I encourage folks to get your book because you dive into more detail of your journey. But I'd love to just start with your childhood. I have most all of my guests do that. And just tell me a little bit about it and your faith, your upbringing. I know you said in your elementary years, you didn't struggle as much, but then your later elementary schools, you did. So wherever you want to start with your origin story. I knew I was transgender at the time I was three or four. And I know the time frame because the the house we lived in at the time, which we moved to uh, when I was three and moved from before I turned five. And that's where I remember having this uh, really rather mundane thought that also I think was even a sign then of white male entitlement. I just remember thinking, yeah, pretty soon a gender fairy will arrive and uh, I'm going to have to tell her whether I'm going to be a boy or a girl. So do I want to stand up for the rest of my life when I go to the bathroom or do I want to sit down? To me, that was one of the main things I had to think about, you know, so this is how young I was in the process. And, you know, there are, there's a whole class of trans kids In fact, one of my neighbors has a trans daughter who is identified as male at birth. And her first phrase was, mommy, I a girl. And you do have trans kids that are very, very strong and very firm about it. I was not one of those. Once I realized that there was not going to be a gender fairy, it's like, okay, all right, well, that's not really what I wanted, but you know, I'm I'm good. It's okay to be a boy. Mm -hmm. Of course, I didn't tell anyone about it because my father was a fundamentalist pastor. My mother was even more conservative, so that would not have gone well. Plus, nobody knew anything back then. Mm -hmm. Almost no one had even heard anything about it. There was one quasi-celebrity, a uh, GI from World War II who had transitioned genders in Denmark in the early 1950s, Christine Jorgensen. And I read everything I could read about her once I became a high school student and actually watched her. I remember the day on the Merv Griffin TV show. I talk about that in my book. And realizing for the first time ever, oh, this is actually something that's possible to do and being uh, excited and terrified about it at the same time. So yeah, I just kind of grew up as a really a privileged kid. In a but you do share, I'm going to interrupt home. real quick, I'm going to interrupt oh, because quick. you do share like the first time that you 
tried on clothes, like you tried on your grandmother's dress and mm-hmm. that at a young age and your mom walked yep. in and pretty much oh, freaked out. that didn't go so well. That did right. not go all that well at all. And it's interesting. It, um, it was a long time in therapy and we're going back now years and years, 25 years ago, probably before, before I was even able to talk about that. Okay. And deal with it. It was, in fact, really a traumatic experience for mm-hmm, me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was back on that geographical spot this past week. And I, I say that because the house is no longer there. There's another house there. It's right next to a cemetery. And it's the cemetery where my parents are buried. And I had not been to my father's grave since he died. He died in the middle of COVID, though not of COVID. But we hadn't been able to go or have a funeral. And I've really been very much wanting to get to the grave. And yeah, just even looking back, it was like, right there's where the barn was, right there's where the back porch was, right there where the summer bedroom and summer kitchen were, which were places that were screened in where they would sleep in the summer because it was cooler. And it was in that that summer bedroom that um, that I was playing dress up with my cousins and yeah, got in trouble. And I'm sure, is it I'm only imagining, but because of the shame that that brought to you, just feeling, is that why that's such a hard oh, God, yeah. memory? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was, um, the shame was incredible. Yeah. Often you find with trans women, and that's what I am, people sometimes don't understand the terms. Someone who's transitioned from male to female is a trans woman, from female to male is a trans man. Right. But for a lot of trans women, there is deep, deep shame involved with our transition, often because of circumstances like that when we were young, and then often for other reasons that we may or may not get into in our time together. And so you felt that intense shame. You say that through elementary school, you didn't struggle as much, but then your later elementary years, it really just became an overwhelming feeling for you. And so did you wrestle with God at that time? I'm curious about your faith. Did you struggle with God? Why, have you made me the wrong person? Like what is going on? Cause you yeah. were raised in a very fundamental Christian home. Right. So God was a factor yeah. in your life and your yeah. faith. Yeah. I would pray every night that I would wake up a girl the next day. Mm-hmm. And really that was That was more a uh, ritual, I think, during my elementary school years. I was fairly comfortable, I think, in my gender then, uh, with with exceptions. I mean, clearly, a child who's praying every night to change genders is not all that comfortable, but I wasn't really distraught. And about sixth grade, when all the girls' bodies started changing, was when it was like, hey, wait, wait, that's not, wait, that's not fair. Mm -hmm. And I, I realized that, that, you know, mine wasn't going to change in that way. And that was hard. Junior high was even harder because now everybody's body's changing and mine didn't until the end of my ninth grade year. And I just hated the changes that were taking place. I hated testosterone and its impact on me. And so those were extremely difficult years. I mean, I knew I was attracted to women and have always been and always will be, I think. But I was, you know, I, I, as I say in the book, I, I much too often would be attracted to a, a girl, but would also want to be the girl to whom I was yeah. attracted. 
And that just complicates relationships from the right. beginning. One of the things that I still don't have an explanation for uh, with Kathy, my wife of 40 years, that when I met her, she was one of the first people that I, I wanted to be with and didn't want to be. Mm-hmm. And that it, by itself was like, oh, definitely I'm going to pursue this one because she doesn't have that complicating factor that so many right. of the others did. Right. And you bring up your wife and we're, we're skimming over a lot of your childhood. Again, sure. folks need to read your book. Um, but for time's sake, we're skimming over a lot of it. But clearly, you are wrestling and struggling and trying to figure out who, who this person is that God made and are you in the wrong body? And then you talk about Bible college. You're kind of following the trajectory that your family following in your father's footsteps. And you're thinking, okay, if I go to Bible college, I can just put this aside this. And then you meet your wife where that will surely cure me. So talk a little bit about those feelings and thinking, okay, I can just get over this. Well, there's an evangelical bubble that actually keeps you away from broader ranges of knowledge. And so you are taught very early as an evangelical, something that Jesus didn't speak much about at all, which is sexual sin. It is fascinating that sexual sin as a major category of sin Uh, doesn't really show up in the life of the church until Augustine, who lived from 340 to 420. And it's his own personal background, if you know much about Augustine, that that causes him to, to have this fixation with sexual sin. And the notion that something like masturbation would be a sin is very late in development. Mm -hmm. And when you take a look at it from a sociological or even anthropological perspective, Christianity became a patriarchal religion. I don't believe that it began that way. In fact, if you look at the teachings of Jesus compared to the teachings of other leaders of the day, there's no one who elevated the role of women more than Jesus. I mean, take a look at Mary Magdalene and how important she was to his ministry. And yet, as soon as he's gone, she kind of disappears from the scene. I think probably not because she wanted to, but because, you know, all the guys were like, wait, no, no, you know, it's a patriarchal society. So you have this this notion developing that it's men who are going to run all of this. And power structures are fascinating in that those in power don't want to give up power. And so they create ways in which they can remain in power. And one of the ways in which they do that, it's called mimetic theory, comes from René Girard. One of the ways they do that is to decide there are enemies within the camp that must be fought against, that they are the only ones who have the capacity to identify or defeat. Mm-hmm. So to put that in a, in a contemporary perspective, the enemies in the camp are the LGBTQ plus community. And after marriage equality was held uh, by the Supreme Court, they shifted that to the transgender population, which we can talk about that a little bit later. But very early, as the church was gaining strength after it had become the legal religion of the Roman Empire in 313, the church is looking for ways to identify enemies within the camp. Oh, how about our sexuality? Because that is universal. And if the sexuality, our basic sexuality becomes the enemy, that we must fight against, the one that will keep us separated from God, then we can be the ones, and the Catholic Church, of course, was controlling Christianity at this point, we can be the ones 
who are the only ones who have the power to forgive you for your basic sexuality. And so now all kinds of sexual things become sin in that world because it allows those who are in power to remain in power. Oh, yes, masturbation is a sin. It will send you to hell. But if you will tell me about it in confession, I, as a priest, have the capacity to forgive you of that mm-hmm. sin, mm-hmm. which guarantees my power. Right. So you end up with this entire enemy created from within that is, in fact, endemic to who we are. We are inherently sexual beings, and our sexuality and spirituality are so closely intertwined that you cannot be separated. But the church in its evangelical and fundamentalist forms, and really all the desert religions in their fundamentalist forms, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, continue to identify sexuality as a major sin. And it's such a distortion, and it does not agree with the teachings of Jesus or with the entire history of Israel or even with the early church. We have ended up creating this big giant enemy that in fact never existed and still doesn't exist. And so you know all this now, but I'm guessing in Bible college, you didn't, obviously. So you were being taught taught the opposite or you start questioning what you were taught in Bible college? I think I've always been pretty terminally curious. And I even questioned God. I, I said in a TED talk I did with my son, I believe in God most days, except for Tuesdays and Thursdays and any day I'm on the New Jersey Turnpike, which if you've ever been on it, you would understand. You know, belief has never come easily to me. So I always was a bit of a skeptic. And I remember in the 1980s, Dan Taylor wrote a book called The Myth of Certainty mm-hmm. that I just loved. It's been republished, I think, with a in a new edition. But it was helpful to me, the, the whole notion that it's obvious that God exists. And, you know, all of that seemed to me like, yeah, actually, no, because God's nothing if not subtle. So for me, I was questioning from the beginning, and I was very much questioning in Bible college, and yet it was the world I inhabit. Right. So for instance, uh, LGBTQ issues, I finished Bible college in the early 70s, and by the early 80s, I had already become fully affirming of the LGBTQ population. But by the early 80s, I also had a lot of influence within our denomination, which was about 7,000 churches. And so I thought, well, I can change it from within. It'll take a lot long time, but I can do that. And did become known as someone on the left of our evangelical denomination, so much so that at one point I was asked to be the editor-at-large or a national magazine, specifically because I was more the left of the denomination. But to be on the left of evangelicalism is still pretty far right. I was going to say, like, and, <laughs> oh, yeah. And I yeah it doesn't back say a now, whole lot, but yeah. I wish I had come out supportive of the LGBTQ population sooner. I would not have come out as trans sooner because I wasn't ready to. But I wish I had come out supportive of the LGBTQ population sooner because I knew theologically I no longer held that position by the time I was probably 30. That's such an interesting chapter in your book because you do talk about that, that your own faith was shifting and you were affirming, which is crazy to lead a huge evangelical ministry planting and church and to feel that way. But you were talking to other leaders within it who also were affirming. Mm-hmm. But the unwillingness to take that stand, you say, really comes down to financials, which I'm like, gosh, I haven't really heard of 
that. Oh, I mean, yeah. I've heard of it, but just the, the yeah. huge ramifications. Um, you said oh, if evangelical yeah. churches that became affirming usually lost about 20% of their people and 25% of their income. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you have a you know fairly sizable evangelical or post-evangelical audience, I've spoken to, oh, I'm going to say three, three megachurch pastors your audience knows who told me personally before I transitioned, oh yeah, you know I'm where you are on this. It's just that my money is not. And that includes pastors of, of uh, more than one of the 10 largest churches in the United States. That just makes me tear up because of all the people that feel so rejected that they could have that view, right. but outwardly proclaim something else to the congregation. You know, I'm going to go back. Yeah. I'm going to go, like, go back a step just because I'm in such a high profile right now. It's critically important that I always be exactly accurate. Sure. One of one of those people is a pastor of one of the 10 largest churches. Okay. In the US. I, said, okay. I said two of them, but yeah, all three would be in the 100 largest churches in the U.S. I appreciate you clarifying. Like I said, you said you yeah. have to be, <laughs> yeah, <gotta> be <laughs> totally, totally accurate, but it's still powerful though, because a whole community is suffering and feeling rejected by God and the church because of that. And I think that's why this issue is just becoming more and more in my heart because we are turning so many away from God and increasing that shame and making them feel rejected because of the unwillingness to take a stand. But one of the things you said, you said, by refusing to take a stand, I was holding a public position that cost me nothing. You definitely weren't willing to come out as transgender, but not willing to take a stand because you, you weren't willing to give up what you had. No, I wasn't. No, I think I was very, very comfortable with the power that I had and had convinced myself that it was all right to remain in that denomination and be an influence moving things in a progressive manner. And I have a good friend who lives in New York who who worked with us decades ago, who's a gay man. And he's read the book and he said, you know, I think you're too tough on yourself. And he said, "I, I really probably would have encouraged you back then to remain because you were so influential. And you did speak pretty boldly at the edges of that topic. And I found hope in that. And I said, okay, well, I appreciate that you feel that way, but I'm responsible for my own conscience and my own conscience convicts me. I, I recognize now that lives were at stake and I wasn't aware of that. And it is, it's easier to look back and say that because when you're in it, mm-hmm. it's, it's yeah. really hard. Also with that is the reason that you didn't feel like you could come out as trans because you were like, you knew that you had this white, did you know at that time you had this white male privilege or do you also only realizing that in hindsight because you weren't ready to give that up either? I think I knew it to a degree. I remember Mm -hmm. being on the national convention or the the executive committee of our national convention, which was just, I think, 11 of us and um, going into a meeting and this would be in the early 2000s. And there was not a single woman in the room. And I said, um, I said, guys, really? Seriously? How how did it get here? And I said, I mean, it it is time to shift the narrative. Mm -hmm. And this was, in fact, at the time, the the third largest church in the U.S. Their lead pastor said, but if we do that, that'll change the narrative. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, yeah, 
that would change the narrative. And, and there was no irony in the statement, nor did anyone in the room blink an eye. So I did, I think, have an awareness that what we were continuing was not okay, particularly in the realm of gender inequity. I wrote a lot about it in the magazine and got a lot of conservatives very, very angry. I felt like we should have <laughs> women who were pastors of churches. Those things I understood. My own privilege, related to it? Nah, I don't think I was. I think I was pretty clueless until I transitioned. Because one of the things, statements you say in your book, something like, I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth, but I had access, easy access, access to, to a lot of spoons. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 So I'm sure the hindsight with that is quite mind blowing. And we'll talk about that a little bit more because I have watched both of your TED talk, or a couple of your TED talks where you talk about yeah. um, just realizing now that white privilege. And we'll, I do want to talk more about that. But before we do, let's just talk about a little bit about your personal life during this time, because for folks that don't know, you you were married. You married to Kathy, mm-hmm. the woman you spoke about earlier. You're starting a family. You have three kids. You are living what looks to be like the American dream, great life. But you're still really, really wrestling, obviously, with gender identity and knowing that you are not not Paul, that you you are Paula. But you keep trying to kind of to fight it, would you say? I mean, you tell your oh, wife. Yeah, yeah. I mean, fight it is t- for sure. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, because you don't, tra- you've only transitioned in the last 10 years and are you almost 70? I hate to ask you that, but is that okay I, to ask I you? I turned 70 last month. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. So most all of your life was led as, as Paul. So just go, tell me a little bit about that wrestling. I know you've dealt with depression that you went to therapy. Like you really, really struggled with this. Well, I did. I I did not want my family to have to go through this. Yeah. I didn't want Kathy to have to go through it. And that's still painful. That's yeah. still very, very difficult. I, I exploded the family narrative. And I think at the time I thought, oh, you know, five years will be fine. We'll have a new normal. And I think we've all realized, no, it's going to yeah. be 10. And we're eight years in at this point. And I think it, it, yeah, I was just talking to my son yesterday and he was saying that he, you know, he feels like he's there. One of my daughters does. I don't think the other daughter does. Um, and Kathy is still really struggling with it. We're, we're still close. We work together. She's a therapist. Okay. We, we uh, share a company and share an office. And so we see each other every week, but it's been very, very difficult for her. You share a lot more details and you're very vulnerable in your book talking about that. And when I think about your story, it's just, that's so, that's, a, that is a heartbreaking part of it because of you letting, you know, the marriage, your wife seems just amazing. And it's like, you knew you had to sacrifice a lot of that and you go, we're not going to talk too much more about that because it's your, you do such a good job in your book of sharing just how your children reacted. I mean, your son's a pastor, uh, how your wife reacted at the time, because you, you did try to be honest with her a little bit earlier on of like, I'm kind of struggling. And she said, well, this is like a gender dysphoria. We can fight this. We can work on this problem mm-hmm. together. Yeah. So you weren't entirely like dishonest with her. It's just... It- no, I had not told her before marriage, not out of a desire to deceive her, but because I was really 100% convinced that marriage was going to fix it. And once it didn't, I knew then immediately that I needed to tell her. And the, the only thing I didn't tell her was what I really couldn't admit to myself at the point, which was that I knew I wanted to be a woman. Huh. What I did tell her was that I found uh, great comfort and satisfaction in and spending time dressed as a woman. And so that that was her understanding of it. And the only amount of understanding I was even willing to give myself at a conscious level sure. for a good long while. So what was 
And some questions I'm asking you that I know the answer to because you share them in your book. But if you can kind of share in a nutshell with the listeners, what kind of made you decide, you know what, I'm going to quit fighting this. I mean, I know it was a culmination, but you, in your book, you share about kind of a moment where you're like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to quit fighting this and I, I'm going to become who I'm supposed to be, who God made me to be. Yeah. We were saying earlier that we're a narrative-based species and that that we don't don't sleep without dreaming and we don't dream in mathematical equations. We dream in stories. You know, we, we are a story-based species. So it is not surprising to me that my strong sense of call happened because of an extremely well-told story. And one of the, most people agree, one of the top 10 television shows of all time was the show Lost, which ended in 2010. And there comes a point in the final season in which the protagonist, uh, Jack, if you were a Lost fan, comes to realize he's been called to be the next God figure, Jacob, and that he's also therefore called to die. And that to me was a profoundly cathartic moment where I realized I was called to transition. And I literally cried all the way to dawn. Mm. It was, I still, if I watch any, any episode of the final season of Lost, particularly that episode, which again, if you're a Lost fan, was when Jack first saw his childhood home uh, in the mirrors of the lighthouse. Uh, it, it was profoundly moving for me. David Lindelof and Carlton Cuse were the showrunners for that show. And I've always thought if I ever got the chance to meet either one of them, I would thank them for the brilliance of what they wrote, particularly for the brilliance of the final season and the final show, which they've taken a lot of heat over. A lot of people didn't like it. So it just profoundly hit you. I am supposed to die to myself and become who God made me. You say, what kept me going was my conviction that living authentically was sacred and holy and for the greater good. And I think that's such a powerful statement. So you do begin the process, although very hard. You even say, talk about you were angry with God and you yell during this. Who do you think you are? You made me this way. I'm better not to be born. So this was still not an even close to an easy road for you once you decide and you start transitioning. No, no, it was not. And it was really two years before I acted on that call, which in fact is very typical if you've ever looked at Joseph Campbell's stuff on the hero's journey. Everyone is called onto a hero's journey. Most of us are called more than once in our lives. And virtually everyone initially rejects Mm. the call Mm. onto the hero's journey because the call onto the hero's journey is always a call onto the road of trials. And no one willingly goes on to the road of trials until you find a spiritual guide who you trust to direct you through the road of trials. You know, it's the Yoda that comes into your life that says, you've got this, you can do this. And that for me was another couple of years before I found the strength to act. Yes, because it came with so much sacrifice. I mean, you you were transitioning to who, mm-hmm. a lot of sacrifice. And so besides family, wife, your home, your job. So let's talk about that for a little bit because you finally get to the point where you're honest with who you work for, the mega church, the church planning organization. You think that you're going to have a rational talk, that they know who you are, that I can transition out of this and be honest, but that's not what happened. So that was devastating. Will you share just a little bit about that with us, because I think it's important to see the discrimination that happens with the LGBTQ community. The essence of it was white male privilege, really, that I thought I would be able to define the narrative. Mm -hmm. And when I came out to them, I uh, I was coming out because I wanted 
to be um, helpful to them. I had never come out to anyone except for my therapist, my best friend who was a therapist, uh, still is, and Kathy. So it was three people on earth I had come out to. Kathy had told her therapist. So there were not very many people who knew. And once I began to realize it was a distinct possibility, I would have to transition. Uh, we told the children. And then once it seemed to be more of a likelihood, um, not, not just a 50-50, but oh, yeah, this probably needs to happen. That's when I decided to tell the people with whom I worked. And because I still wasn't sure, I had a two-year plan in mind where I could ramp down and um, and then step away. And because no one knew, and it had been information that, that just wasn't out there anywhere throughout my entire life, I thought, you know, it, until I decide I, I'm going to transition. This does not need to be information that's known. And the naivete in that, that I could tell a, an executive committee of an organization and think that they weren't going to tell their wives and their wives weren't going to tell somebody, you know, <laughs> just to think that that wasn't going to get out was just absurd. But I thought that they would give me the two years I was asking for uh, to at least get to the point where I was sure that I was, in fact, going to transition. But I uh, I was gone within seven days at the time I came out. This was a ministry I'd taken from a budget of 160000 to a budget of $3 million, or $4 million, rather, from working just in New York to working worldwide, from being a mom-and-pop shop to this uh, very respected church planting organization. 35 years I've been with them, never had a bad review, and I was gone in seven days. It's, it's unbelievable, yet not. I mean, and then they even told you they would give you like a week's severance for every year that you've been there, and then they mm -hmm. took that back. Well, that, no, that they gave me. They did I give had, you, but still not. Right, bad. but I had a uh, half million dollars of my own money on um, on that I had loaned them, that I was eventually going to be giving them. But at the time, it was a loan. And um, I was sure I was going to get that back. And they did not want to give that back. I had to threaten a lawsuit to get that back. It's a good thing I did, because over the next 48 months post-transition, I earned a total of $23,000. So over 48 months, I earned uh, the same amount that I earned in my last two months as a uh, as CEO of Orchard. And so if I had not gotten that money back, we would have been in big, big trouble. So they let you go within seven days. It's all gone. And just as a side note, you did consult a lawyer that said that that's illegal for big companies or companies, but not but churches are exempt from that, apparently. It, it is. Uh, yeah. And that's continues to be the case. I'm speaking for a White House event um, next week with uh, Pete Buttigieg and, um, and it's two clergy all over the U.S. trying to get them to, to support the Equality Act. And it, interestingly, over 60% of Americans support the Equality Act, and yet it doesn't look like it stands much of a chance of passing in the Senate uh, because the, we just don't have the votes to get it passed. But even the Equality Act, which guarantees rights to LGBTQ plus people, beyond those which have been guaranteed by the 
Supreme Court's decisions. It provides far greater civil rights to trans people, but still all religious organizations are exempt. Religious organizations are exempt from <sighs> all laws of civil rights and equality in all 50 states. So in all 50 states, you cannot be fired for being transgender, but in all 50, you can if you're transgender and you work for a religious corporation. So they're opposing wow. a law that protects the freedom of religion in ways that I think is not appropriate, but there's really not a not a thing we can we can do about it, I don't think. Certainly not about that part of it. I mean, it just I'm thinking about how Christian schools were the last to become desegregated. It's like this religious umbrella that they're standing under this protection of God that they can do what they want. But well, it's there's a there's a, a, a statistic that is very recent that is horrible. They did exit interviews. Um, that's not the right language, but at when people voted in the election in all ten swing states, people who said they had voted for Trump, they took a survey of those people and asked them a number mm -hmm. of questions. Sixty-one percent of those people said that transgender people should have the same civil rights as everyone else in the United States. So this is 61% of Trump supporters. That's interesting. Okay. You said that. Over 70% of the population on the whole believes that trans people should have the same civil rights everyone else has. And yet we have currently nine bills that have passed, over 300 pending in 30 states that would take away the civil rights of transgender children. Talk about yes. a vulnerable group. So who's driving those? Well, it's Republican state legislatures. But if in fact it's not political conservatives, because political conservatives of all stripes, ages, ethnicities, and ethnic groups or, or language groups, two thirds of those people are supportive of transgender rights. So who's driving these legislators to to try to get these laws passed? And there's eleven of them, nine passed, and eleven just waiting signatures from governors. It's evangelical Christian. Eighty-four percent of evangelical Christians believe that gender is immutably determined at birth though the Bible doesn't say that anywhere. Uh, they try to use the passage where in Genesis, male and female, God created them. But, you know, there are 16 different intersex conditions that exist. So clearly God did not create them male and female. And it's just unconscionable what's happened there because... 61% of evangelicals believe that transgender people already have too many civil rights. And yet wow. only 25% of trans uh, of evangelicals have ever met a trans person. Wow, Paula. Again, surprising, but not. And I might ask you yeah. for some of those studies that we could link up or those statistics, because that's just, it's fascinating. And it's yeah, actually, if you, um, if you go to CNN okay. and just, uh, and, and just some of them. put my name in CNN, I wrote an op-ed for them oh, okay. uh, that came out a couple of weeks ago that okay. links to those okay. statistics. Okay, we will, yep. we will link it's that. It's a article. Pew research study that discovered okay. that. Okay, we will link that. And as you're talking, I'm sure my listeners can hear that you have definitely become a spokesperson and somebody that fights for gender equity, trans rights and gender equity, which you are coming, now you're fully transitioned to Paula. So you have this unique perspective of living most all of your life as a man, having absurd white male privilege. And now you're a woman and your eyes have really opened to that. That. Tell me, and I'll link up those TED Talks because you go into it more, but just tell me a little bit when your eyes really started opening as a woman where you were like, oh, wait a second, I'm definitely not treated the same. Yeah, so many of my stories from that first year are related to being on airplanes because I spend a lot of time on airplanes. I've flown two and a half million miles, actual miles. So you would think then that the experience would be the same, mm -hmm. that you would be treated the same. 
in those environments as you were when you were a man. And that was where I discovered instantly, my very first trip ever, that that was not the case. You know, I had a guy who was in my seat. And when I told him that he was in my seat, he kept just fighting with me saying, no, no, that I was wrong. It was his seat. And I was just shocked because in my previous life, anytime I would ever say something like that, we just say, well, excuse me, I believe that's my seat. I instantly, the man would have looked at his boarding pass and would have immediately said, oh, I'm sorry, because a man is telling me that I'm in his seat. Therefore, he must know something. And sure enough, then I'm in his seat, but no, a woman's telling it to me. She's just wrong. And it wasn't until the flight attendant took our boarding passes that he finally was able to, you know, and of course he didn't even acknowledge it then. He just sat down in the other seat. He didn't say, I'm sorry or anything. But, you know, she said to him, sir, you're in in 1C, she's in 1D. It still happens, uh, you know, right up to this very day. And you you share in your book, you've apologized to your wife or now your eyes are open to all all the things that as a woman that you expected from her or that she felt like she had to do. And then the other thing I found so, interesting and true was the whole interrupting as a woman, how much you feel like you're interrupted when you talk. Men interrupt women twice as often as they interrupt other men. And men are encouraged from childhood on because they're less verbal. And particularly when they're children, they're less verbal. So they're encouraged in our education system to just think out loud and to speak up whenever they want to speak up. Girls, on the other hand, know they're going to be interrupted. They're not encouraged to think out loud. And so they will, in fact, not speak up at all until they know exactly what they want to say. And they know they can say it quickly, concisely, precisely, because they know they're likely to get interrupted. And so you find all over the world, these men who will just get up and just keep talking until finally maybe a half-baked idea comes into their mind. Whereas a woman who's got a wonderful idea never even expresses it because she knows she's going to be interrupted as soon as she tries to. You know, we teach our sons to be confident. We teach our daughters they have to be perfect. We're not doing our daughters any favors. You know, I I say in the book, you know, you get into your first job and a position opens up within the company and it has five requirements. And a woman has four of the five, but she thinks, well, I can't apply for it. I don't have the fifth because we've taught her she has to be perfect. Our sons, on the other hand, that we teach to be confident, you know, the son's got, you know, he's got two of the five and he thinks, yeah, I'm applying for that job. I got this. And then he ends up getting the job, even though he's half as qualified as the woman who didn't apply. And, you know, I I say all the time, we've got to teach our daughters to be persistent, not perfect. And another thing that I just thought was so powerful, and I think I maybe heard this in a TED talk, but... You talk about like questioning yourself, like as a man, you were, you still dealt with some confidence issues as a man, but you didn't like question your thoughts and your, what you wanted to say. But as a woman, you struggle with almost questioning, like, am I, am I, is this right or not? Just because of the reaction from society. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've, I've lost an inordinate amount of confidence in just seven years and, you know, make no mistake about it. I brought 60 years of privilege with me when I transitioned. So, you know, to have lost that much in Mm. just seven years to me is amazing. I will say also though, that some of that is because of women. I've had more conflict with with women as a woman in seven years than I had with women as a man in in 60 years. That's so interesting. Like, why do you think that is? Because the women were conditioned 
to just take what men say as as is, but women, yeah, no, I'm, I, I'm curious how what you think I, that is. I don't think I fully understand it. Why, you know, I was um, I was talking to a reporter from a major newspaper who who was interviewing me for a story, and she asked me about that, and she said that's not been my experience at all. And before I even had a chance to respond, she said, but I was talking to Madeleine Albright yesterday, the uh, former Secretary of State, and she said that Madeleine reminded me. She said, do you remember what I said? There's a special place in hell for women who do not empower other women. Mm -hmm. And, you know, saying to the reporter, nope, actually what Paula says is very true. I don't think I fully understand the reason. I think part of it is scarcity mentality. Mm -hmm. Uh, 5.8% of Fortune 500 CEOs are women. 6.6% of Silicon Valley CEOs. You know, a woman gets into a C-suite position and she thinks, I worked hard to get here. I'm not going to, I'm not going to empower you. But men empower other men regularly, routinely. And it's been surprising to me how much women do not empower one mm-hmm. another. And I think what you just said, that scarcity mentality mm-hmm. is so spot on. Yep. One, another quote that you had that I think is so powerful, you said, a woman is always riding that fine line between being too strong and not strong enough, judged and found lacking both by men and women. And it's been one of the most unwelcome realities of life as a woman. So are you still juggling and trying to find that balance between being too strong and not strong enough? Or have you become more comfortable in who you are as a woman? Because as a woman, 45-year-old woman, I feel like I'm still working on that. And I don't know if it's a lifelong thing. I, yeah, no, I hate to say this, but probably it is a lifelong <laughs> thing. I, um, you know, most of the book was just writing the things I've already discovered mm-hmm. and which is how you should be writing a memoir. Otherwise, if it's, if you're writing about things you haven't yet resolved, right, right. you know, you're, you're guilty of what D.H. Lawrence says, a writer sheds his sickness in his writing and oh. you don't want to be doing that. You don't want to shed your sickness. But one of the areas that I actually was still working through and in writing it, I ended up, um, I think finding the words that expressed what I've come to is that I do give myself permission to be an alpha female. And I am actually convinced that alpha females are some of the strongest leaders on earth because they are far more inclined to have the paradoxical strengths of great confidence coupled with great humility. And you don't see that in as many alpha males. You see great confidence, you don't see the humility. But the majority of women who are very strong leaders are not the devil wears Prada. Uh, the majority of them are Jacinda Ardern, the, the uh, prime minister in New Zealand, who was brilliant in leading her nation through uh, the coronavirus because she worked collaboratively, because she was willing to compromise, because oh, this was huge. She was willing to admit when she was wrong and and go down a different direction. She had that great confidence coupled with great humility. The same thing would would have been true, I think, of Angela Merkel in Germany or or any of the other four uh, countries that did extremely well that had women as heads of state. I'm looking at the time here, Paula, that we have to wrap up here soon and I could keep talking to you, but I'm going to ask you just a couple more questions. So shifting gears a little bit for a final couple questions. If you could go back and tell your younger self, any age, anything, what, what would you tell that person? Um, I, you know, you would think I've been asked this question before, given that Have I've you not? dozens of <laughs> interviews here recently. No, I've not been asked this question before. Okay. And I didn't and give you this I, question in advance because I don't no, always ask it, but it seems like um, I'd, love, I'd love to know. I, I think it would be just that one line. It was interesting when you do a TED Talk, 
your talks have to be memorized and they're memorized word for word. And my first TED Talk, well, all three of my recorded TED Talks and my fourth one, which was not recorded, it was at the TED Summit just for TED people. Um, but I've always had the, the head of uh, coaching for TED of, of speaking, Briar Goldberg has always been my coach. And I kept tripping up on that talk. And uh, there was one place that I was kept forgetting what came next. And, you know, it's, it's my sermons I've memorized thought for thought, but a TED talk has to be memorized word for word because it's going to go around the world into all kinds of different languages and cultures. And so you've got to be really careful with your use of language. And I'm, you know, I, I'm in the dress rehearsal and I've lost it. I've lost the next line. And so it bothered me so much. And it was uh, about one in the morning, I was going over it and I thought I've lost it because it needs a transition sentence. And so I wrote a transition sentence right then. And then the, early the next morning, I said to Briar, is this okay? And she said, sure, yeah, go ahead and, and drop it in. And I used it again in the second talk with Ted. And then I used it again in the third talk or the fourth talk actually with TEDx Mile High, the second one I'd done for them. And it is, the line I would tell myself younger. And it is, in fact, the dedication of the book. The call toward authenticity is sacred and holy and for the greater good. And I would say to my younger self, trust the call. Mm, powerful. So my next question actually goes along with this. And I, again, I would have given you these in advance, but I kind of, oh, nope. I, I formulate them. I, okay. I formulate them as we go based on what we're yeah. saying. So I read that quote earlier and you just said it again about the greater good. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious what you see. I mean, I see your life as you've died to yourself. So ultimately you could find yourself. And like you said, trust, trust that process of vulnerability for the greater good. What do you see as that greater good that you've, that you're striving for, or that you've sacrificed mm -hmm. for? I think that the essence of Christianity, Jesus summed up for us in his last public day of ministry. It's the last day he ever spoke to the crowds at large. It was, in effect, his last press conference. And it was the last question he was ever asked publicly. Which of the laws is the greatest? And he said three things. There are 613 laws, but he said, love God, love your neighbor, and love yourself. And Matthew tells us that there was stunned silence. And, you know, this was kind of like a press conference. There were all these religious leaders there prepared to ask a list of questions as long as there are. And yet no one dared to ask him any more questions. That's the exact next phrase that Matthew says. No one dared to ask him any more questions. It really was that simple, devastatingly simple, really. Because as simple as it is, it's not easy to love God, love neighbor, and love self. I think that is what we're all called to do. And I think if we're honest in it, there will always be great sacrifice involved in that. It begins by loving yourself, because if you can't love yourself well, you can't love anyone else well. And that's one of the great tragedies of the church teaching us to hate ourselves instead of love ourselves. You know, we, we're told to sacrifice ourselves. You, you can't love another by sacrificing yourself. You have to love yourself first, which then gives you the capacity to extend yourself to love another. Self-sacrifice doesn't help us love others. It's the extension of a healthy self that enables us to love others. Mm. And so for me, I think that that is what calls me forward. Desire to love God, love 
love neighbor, including all those people who hate me because I'm transgender and to love myself. Mm. Paula, thank you so much for just giving, for your vulnerability, for your book, for your voice, for giving me your time today. I'm just humbled and honored to be able to talk to you today. Tell me where folks can find you and we will link it up. But if you just want to tell us if folks want to find you and connect with you. Yep. If you want to find me, it's at paulastonewilliams.com. And you can find my book, As a Woman, What I Learned About Power, Sex, and the Patriarchy After I Transitioned, any place, pretty much. I encourage you to find it at your local independent bookstore. Uh, yes. Because those are the people who keep the world of the written word alive. It's encourage you to take a look at it. You can get a hardback copy at this point or audio, which I did in fact read the book, you and did. I think okay. there's a lot more, a lot more nuance and subtlety comes through from the audio version than reading it. All right, Paula, thank you so much. Grateful for your voice and for just your dedication for for the greater good and spreading this love of God. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening in on this conversation and stretching your heart and mind to the stories of others. The links mentioned in this episode, including the article that Paula wrote for CNN, can be found in the show notes at HerStorySpeaks.com. As I mentioned, this is the last episode for this season of the Her Story Speaks podcast, while I take off a couple months to enjoy summer with my family. You can always find me on Instagram at HerStorySpeaksPodcast, and I may even be back this summer with a bonus conversation or two with some past guests but I'll for sure be back in September to introduce you to new guests and new stories.